Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 182. My name is Irvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Fooleman, it's been a while. It has been a while. That's the longest break we've taken since we started doing this podcast, which it was pointed out to me was five years ago. That's crazy. As of this week. That's, that's nuts, man. That's, uh, that's the wood anniversary. People got to give us silverware. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a crazy run. The Leafs have won zero playoff series since we started doing it, which is insane. But they did a bunch of stuff to hopefully redress that lack mm. that we're going to complain about now and or laud or whatever. But, yeah, we're going to survey what the Leafs have done with their offseason. Um, with a focus on free agency, the draft, we do not have strong feelings about. Right. Um, yeah, like I, I, I'm not gonna lie to you and say that I was grinding Fraser Minton tape <laughs> during during you know the weeks off that we that we had. Experience has taught me that even if I did in depth research on a prospect, much of it would lead me to wrong conclusions anyway. So it's yeah. not like it would be a productive use of our or your time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we have a lot to cover, and we're gonna start with departures. Who is gone, and where did they go? Jack Campbell, starting goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs, is gone to the Edmonton Oilers, where he signed as a UFA for five years at $5 million. Ilya Mikheyev took four years at $4.75 million from the Vancouver Canucks. Andre Kasha took one year at $1.5 million from the Carolina Hurricanes. Peter Mrazek was traded to Chicago. The Leafs traded down 13 spots in the draft. From 25 uh, to, to 38. Yes, and the 38th pick was used on the aforementioned Fraser Minton, about whom we know very little. Um, but they unloaded Mrazek, thereby freeing up a little bit of much-needed cap space. Uh, Ilya Lybushkin got that bag, two years at $2.75 million from the Buffalo Sabres. Colin Blackwell, two years at $1.2 million from the Chicago Blackhawks. To and, be their second-line center. Yeah, <laughs> he is now the best player on their team. Um, and Jason Spezza went to a better place. And by a better place, I mean the Leafs front office where he's now a special assistant. What is he doing? I don't know, but I don't care. Good for Jason. I, I love that his title actually is like assistant to the general manager. <laughs> I wonder if they make all this jokes. I'm sure they do. Uh, mm. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he's, uh, at the beginning of what looks to be a promising career post playing in hockey and we wish him the best. Uh, putting him aside, it's not too hard to spot the trend here, which is that these players got too expensive, and so Toronto had to let them go. Right. I mean, there isn't a single contract here where, actually with the exception of Andre Kasha at one year, $1.5 million, where if the Leafs signed it, we'd be like, okay, that's a reasonable amount of money. Yeah, the thing about unrestricted free agency is players get paid a lot, and... Uh, there's something called the winner's curse in game theory, which is that if you are the winner at an auction, you paid the most for it, you probably paid more than the thing was worth. That doesn't apply one-to-one -to, -one to unrestricted free agency, but it is often the result. Um, and so I think I'll start by saying I don't really lament letting any of these players go. That doesn't mean it's mm -hmm. painless, but... Yeah, like, I kind of get it in every single case. Um, the Leafs did apparently offer Andre Kasha 
a contract very similar to what the Hurricanes gave him. Kasha said, nah, I'd rather go play in Carolina, which is his prerogative. Happy trails, Andraj. Um, we're going to talk about Jack Campbell in the context of the Matt Murray trade. So I'll leave him aside for now. I think the most obvious loss here is Ilya Mikheyev. Right. And you can say, hey, that deal looks a little spicy for a guy who may not produce at this level again. But at the same time, he did produce for Toronto last year. Yeah, he was he was very helpful to us last year. And I mean, something we'll probably touch on a lot in this podcast is that the Leafs um, have lost a portion of their depth that was like at least offensively competent. Mm-hmm. And it's not obvious who's going to replace them. Um, and, you know, it's pointed out on Twitter that, like, it's always kind of the case that the Leafs are going to look a little bit worse in the offseason because the players who overperformed are gone because we can't afford them. And then we bring in a host of new players who, you know, hopefully some will overperform and obviously some will also underperform. But, you know, where that, where the offense that Mikheyev provided to us is being replaced is, is less clear, at least in a bottom six sense. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it is less clear and we would be banking on someone kind of outperforming their contract in order to, to do that. Because the reality is last year, Mikheyev was very, very productive for us. He finally made good on his propensity to generate a bajillion breakaways and decided, oh, I was supposed to put them in the net. <laughs> um, and he decided to do that. So if that continues in Vancouver, that's like a fine deal. If it ever stops, then I think they're paying a little too much. But that's, that's, you know, that's their problem now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but the reality is, yeah, we are going to miss Mikheyev's speed. We're, we're really, really not a, that vast a team anymore. I've talked about this before. We've, we've both talked about it before. We're like, you know, the least have transitioned to being a pretty cycle-heavy team in a lot of ways. Um, and Mikheyev's, you know, shorthanded ability and general solid play driving was very helpful for the Leafs last year, especially in dealing with injuries and his versatility um, was helpful too. So he is an absolute loss to the team in the sense that, you know, we are our worst team without Mikheyev than we were with him. Yeah. I think that there's a distinction between I don't want to give him $19 million and he got $19 million for a reason. He was a very useful player in multiple aspects of the game. And that's too bad. And we're going to have to replace him by committee. Now, uh, it was pointed out to me on Twitter. Last year, we said a similar thing about the loss of Zach Hyman. And I think Zach Hyman was a loss. You know, he had a good season for Edmonton. Uh, he played well. He was good for them in the playoffs, all that sort of stuff. But because Michael Bunting exploded in a great situation, but nonetheless, he was super productive, we didn't feel the pain of Zach Hyman missing. And so you can say Kyle Dubas deserves a bit of the benefit of the doubt in terms of his ability to find these players in the bargain bin. And we'll talk about the bargain bin players as we go on. It's just, we're trying to replace a guy who just got paid $4.7 million a year with a bunch of guys who are going to make a lot less than that. That requires some luck, some astute player evaluation, and may involve some decline. But the biggest change is in net as I think everybody listening knows. And so without further ado, let's get down to it. Um, Matt Murray was the goaltender for the Ottawa Senators. 
And he was actually rumored to be traded to the Buffalo Sabres in a trade that would have seen some picks or would have seen a quite high first round pick go to the Sabres for a trade down. And I made fun of that trade, which Matt Murray blocked with his no trade clause. And because the universe is an extended joke on me personally, the Leafs traded for Matt Murray very shortly after I said that. Uh, and I think I said a guy who no one thinks is good anymore traded between teams who aren't trying to win. And now that's our <laughs> starter. So <laughs> the universe is out to get me. Um, but let's back up. The Leafs got Matt Murray at 25% retained salary, uh, which meant that his cap hit for Toronto now is 4.6785 million. Let's call it 4.7 million for the sake of rounding. Plus Toronto got a 2023 third rounder and a 2024 seventh for future considerations, which is legally Bubkiss. So Toronto essentially took this guy, um, with a pick as the price to unload him for Ottawa. Um, it's already a bit of a strange situation that Ottawa is paying us picks to unload salary. Normally you expect that to happen in the reverse direction. <laughs> so I think the first thing we should do, let's briefly discuss this as sort of an asset play because you know this is a sort of interesting situation where we have a player who has essentially two clear values on the market in the sense of there was a rumored trade that the teams agreed to, but the player didn't. Mm -hmm. And then there was this consummated trade with the Leafs. And I think it would be pretty fair to say, and I think this is a relatively popular um, conclusion, is that the Leafs didn't do an amazing job on the asset side here. Mm -hmm. The fact that the Senators retained only 25%, meaning that Murray is still relatively expensive, you know, 4.7 million, as you said, Mm -hmm. uh, is a coup for them, right? The picks that they gave up are a third and a seventh. That's not nothing. But those are not high-value picks by any means, right? The yes. difference between, um, between like not, was it 9 and 16, the picks that they would have had to give up or something? Something like that? Yeah, I thought um, it was 7 and 16, but I could be 7 wrong. and 16, sorry. Like, that's a more significant... I, it's, it's, I don't know, that, that, that's a very significant drop mm -hmm. in, in, in value, right um and you know a third and a seventh i don't know exactly if the difference in value between a seventh and between sorry seven and 16 is the same or higher or lower than just a third and a seventh from whole but you know i i think a lot of people were sort of surprised at the kind of relatively paltry level of assets that the leafs got in return um or that they weren't able to get more retention and it looks like pierre darion drove a hard bargain and took advantage of the fact that the Leafs didn't feel like they had other options that were better. Yes. And that's something we're going to explore a little bit here. Kyle Dubas said he would have liked to get more retention, but the Sens wouldn't go any further on that front. And allegedly they had a deal in their back pocket to dispose of Murray to some other team. And so Kyle Dubas was confronted with uh, the best alternative to a negotiated offer or this trade. He took this. He didn't feel like there was a better alternative. So how good is Matt Murray? We've talked about him as an asset a little bit. What is he as a goaltender? Well, the good news is Matt Murray was decent by goal saved above expected last season. He was 23rd in the league amongst goalies with 20 games played. He only played 20, though, just as a heads up. 
we'll come back to that. Jack Campbell was 35th by that measure um, on the whole season. So you have an argument that Matt Murray was better than Jack Campbell last year in a much smaller sample, if you'd like to make it. Uh, Murray's save percentage was 906, if you care about that unadjusted thing, although that jumps so much moving teams that who knows. Um, Murray also won the Stanley Cup twice. Uh, with the Pittsburgh Penguins in 2016 and 2017, and he was outstanding at that time. He was real fine for them. Right. Um, um, in yeah. Just to put some numbers on it, in the uh, 2016 regular season, where remember, he didn't play very much. He came in in the playoffs and had a fantastic playoffs. He was above average in a, a small amount of games played, 13. And in 2016-2017, he had... Uh, he saved 17 more goals than an average goaltender over the course of the season in starter's workload. That is very, very good. That is, you know, clearly excellent starter territory. Yeah. If we somehow get that out of him again, we will be doing backflips. And the Leafs will be contending for the President's Trophy. Yeah, that's actually, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, if you could guarantee me that we have 16, 17 goals saved above uh, expected, I'm saying we are odds-on favorites for the President's Trophy. Yes. Unfortunately... <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of reasons why we probably shouldn't consider that the most likely scenario. Um, first of all, how much weight you put on what a guy did five years ago in hockey is a tough question. You had a pretty devastating parenthetical when I wrote this in the notes. Um, oh, yeah. I, I said we should put the same amount of weight that we do for Wayne Simmons. Yes. Wayne Simmons, five years ago, was a premier power forward in the NHL. He is now a 14th forward. It's, and that's not a knock on him. That is time and chance passeth to us all. Matt Murray, on a not unrelated note, has struggled considerably with injuries. His 2021-22 season ended on March 5th after a goal-mouth co collision with teammate and old Leaf friend Nikita Zaitsev. Uh, Still Murray's... finding ways to screw up the Leafs, eh? <laughs> Son of a bitch, right? Uh, Murray suffered a concussion, which was at least the fourth one in his NHL career which is worrisome. He's also had multiple lower body injuries. He's talked about struggles to add some muscle to his frame. He's 6'4", and he's pretty lanky. Um, he listed at 202 pounds now, uh, but he was previously very thin. Um, the Leafs were looking closely into his medical records before they made the trade. Apparently, there was some holdup while they did so, because this trade was rumored for a while before it was consummated. But and, I guess uh, they just, were comfortable with what they found. Yeah, just to know, I mean, we got to see you know, the five stages of grief with Leafs fans in real time as this trade was, was happening. And the denial phase was the most obvious and um, <laughs> clear to see because there's so many people being like, this is a smokescreen. This is a smokescreen. This is a smokescreen. And, you know, people, I know Katya had to point this out. That's like, if there's this much smoke, like, you know, NHL insiders get a bad rap. And for they deserve it for many reasons. But I don't generally believe that they lie. Everything that they say, I believe they have heard or been told. Okay, that's actually something that I want to point out about Darren Dreger. A lot of people dislike Darren Dreger because he was sourced from Mitch Marner's side of that contract negotiation. And he was perceived as carrying water for Marner. Whatever. Um, and he also has a wonderful way of saying very little at great length. Um, you know, saying on the one hand, on the other hand, I don't know what's going to happen. But Dreger doesn't lie, okay? Not that I've seen. When he reports something, he means it. And when he talks in a particular way, you can tell he expects a deal is going to happen. 
So it was here, and there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, it's Gregory's full of shit, when he was clearly sending his signals of, I expect this trade is going to go through in the near future. And it did. Anyway. Um, for at least one moment, I'll try and talk about goaltending analysis. My goaltending visual analysis is worth nothing. Most people's ain't worth a whole lot more. So take this with all the grains of salt in the shaker. But uh, Murray has been accused of playing too deep in his, his net, leaning away from the short side to account for passes going uh, laterally, and holding his glove hand too low. You can find people who quibble with those complaints, but the consensus does seem to be that he's not a super athletic goalie. He was reputed for his great confidence in Pittsburgh. I don't know where that confidence is at, at now. I wouldn't be surprised if it's taken a beating. Um, I guess we should fill in the gap in the story. He left Pittsburgh. He signed a remarkable deal with the Ottawa Senators, four years at $6.25 million. He had a very rough start the first year. He had last year where he played only 20 games. And now we've taken the latter half of that deal that I made fun of. I can't believe this is happening to me. It's um, also worth noting, Murray's last year in Ottawa was about as bad. Um, actually, not quite as bad when you account for, for um, time played. But it was, or sorry, last year in Pittsburgh, rather. Yeah. His last year in Pittsburgh was also very, very bad. So yeah. it's not a question of like, you know, as you alluded to, Fulman, you know, it was a remarkable contract because it's like, is this guy any good? And then he had a year in Ottawa, his first year, which suggested, no, this guy is not any good. And then last year, which suggested this guy played average in 20 games. Yeah. Um, I have to say, if you want to feel worse about this deal, and I'm sure you don't if you're listening to this podcast, but if for some reason you did, read the things that Ottawa fans and commentators were saying when he went there about how he was going to turn it around in a market with lower pressure where he was the undisputed starter. Didn't happen. Um, anyway, I'm not sure where he's at in terms of recovery, physically, mentally. I can only note his injury history is pretty intense. I do not mean that in a way that it's somehow his fault. And you can also note he's only um, 28 at this point like he's not actually that old two years younger than campbell yes um which is possibly a factor but yeah um he's been through it a little bit in terms of physical health um the leafs also got a goalie consultant who knows him a little bit john elkin um and as we'll discuss this is not the first time cal dubas has had matt murray on one of his teams um, our starting point is, okay, here's what we have in Matt Murray. We have this guy who was once very good, but that's kind of in the rearview mirror, who has a somewhat frightening injury history, who played 20 decent-ish games last year, but suffered a concussion. I think we can say, let, let's yeah. be fair, we get decent. I think we can, yeah. like, drop the ish. There, there, okay. it, it, was, it was league average. Yeah, okay, so on net, in terms of what he did in those 20 games... Cool, fine, good. But it was mm. only 20. Um, yes. This is who we have, and we've, we're paying $4.7 against the cap for him. What should they have done instead? Let's start with the guy they let go, Jack Campbell. Should they have kept him? Well, the Leafs apparently didn't offer Campbell anywhere near the five years at $5 million he got from the Oilers. Um, considering Murray's AAV is only modestly lower, 
you have to think term matters a lot here. Um, Murray has two years left. Uh, Murray is two years younger. Campbell has got the five years. Right. And it's also useful to point out that with pretty limited exceptions, the Leafs have seemed to be quite uh, intentional about avoiding money extending beyond um, the season after this upcoming one. So that's that's after the 2023-2024 season. That is when Austin Matthews' contract expires and when William Nylander's contract expires. Yes. I don't know what's going to happen with Nylander. The Leafs are going to offer to make Matthews the highest paid player in the NHL. So the preparations for that make sense. It is also worth noting, even though the Leafs are in a win-now position, like they're trying to contend for a Stanley Cup this year, God help me, they're still doing it. Um, even for that, term actually does still matter to you. Even if you're thinking burn the boats. Because if this all goes wrong, the Murray deal will be a lot easier to dispose of in one year because of the term than Campbell's will be. They'll be able to buy it out. Um, whereas Campbell is not going to get bought out in a year. Um, or it'll be easier to trade if they want to. And again, Campbell is probably not going to be traded. Uh, so you can say that they are somewhat smart to get out in front of the term risk there. You can also say Jack Campbell was the best goalie in the world for two months last year, and then just about the worst in the NHL for two months after that, and then kind of, uh, tread water down the stretch coming back from injury. <laughs> if all, yeah, if all that adds up to you as, gee, I don't want to pay this guy five by five to be your starter. I agree with you. And even if I'm lukewarm on the Murray deal, I definitely get why you let Jack Campbell go. Right. I prefer what we did with Murray to signing Jack Campbell to the contract we signed Jack Campbell to. Um, not just because of, you know, uh, the short, in, it's not obvious that Murray is worse short term than Campbell, right? As, as you've alluded to. Mm -hmm. But then like, it's very, very hard to get out of Campbell's deal if it goes south. And then you're also committing to essentially pay $5 million to 35-year-old Jack Campbell and $5 million to 34-year-old Jack Campbell. And do you really want that? And those are years where, in theory, if everything goes well, you're still, you know, those are less important because their future is more uncertain, but there's still years where you want to contend. Absolutely. Um, there's also a question of, can you even really buy good goaltending? And that's not as silly as it sounds. You know, Carlo Koliakovo, um, former Leafs player, now currently pretty bad Leafs commentator, uh, had a tweet talking about how, you know, Leaf fans were silly for being okay with Campbell walking. It's like, you're contending. Get him. Well, as we've said, it's not guaranteed Campbell's the better bet, but goaltenders in general... Um, the NHL is littered with examples of teams buying what they thought was guaranteed starting goaltending and not getting it. Um, John Gibson comes to mind. He signed in a massive extension, eight years at $6.4 million per, when he was probably the best goalie on the planet, or at least top five. Um, and since then, he hasn't met expectations, whether in the mathematical sense or in the general sense of being pretty good. Um... Look at Sergei Bobrovsky when he went to Florida. He was a very, very good goalie in Columbus. And in Florida, he's been awful to middling. Again, these guys were top of the market at the time they signed their deals. Campbell wasn't. And even when these deals work out, they often don't necessarily work out right away. Jacob Markstrom signed in Calgary, um, not last offseason, but the offseason before. 
had a very good last year, I believe, but like was terrible in his first year. Yeah, and kind of submarined um, the Calgary Flames, who for last season were, looked like a cup contender, even though they flamed out in the playoffs, no pun intended, and even though now all of their good players are leaving. Um, so yeah, there is an argument that you can't really buy certainty with goaltenders unless you already have Henrik Lundqvist. Mm -hmm. um, so you might as well shop amongst reasonable options and save your cap hit. And we're going to get into this more later, but to the extent that it's worth being optimistic about the Leafs goaltending, I think what should be remembered is that the Leafs goaltending last year is not a high bar to clear. Yes. So we'll keep that in mind. I wanted to inject a little bit of like a, a crumb of positivity <laughs> in, in this segment, which is leaning on the side of, eh, this is risky because eh, it's risky. Yeah. So the, the argument, if goaltenders are really uncertain, there's a case to say, okay, why don't I shop among the mid-tier guys I'm sure aren't totally irredeemable because they have some NHL experience or they have pedigree or are scouts like them or something. And then I will take my pick amongst those options and I'll save my money. Um, the Leafs did this last year with Campbell and Mrazek. Mixed results, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, Carolina has done it for a while and sometimes it has hurt them. Sometimes it's been just fine. Frederick Anderson was terrific for them last year and I yeah. think better than anyone expected. Right. And, and I mean, if you, I think Kevin Papetti mentioned this on Twitter, but you know, the, the results of the Leafs goaltenders last year is not that different to the results of Carolina goaltenders the year before last, mm -hmm. right? Um, now, of course, that's not to say we'll get the same result because there are plenty of goaltenders who have had, you know, those sorts of results and then did not rebound particularly well. But you can see sort of what the Leafs are, are trying to do. Um, and, you know, that, that leads into kind of the, the other signing they made there as well, which we should, I guess, lump in and discuss as well. Yeah, we'll start uh, including Ilya Samsonov in this next segment. It'll all cohere very wonderfully. Um, so if you want to buy the you-can't-buy-certainty with goaltenders theory, and then it's just take your pick among sort of the semi-bargain bin options, um, I think that there's some logic to that argument. It's not comfortable because it runs the risk of a big blow-up, but you can say, hey, goaltenders might always blow up. And that'll happen with, that's as possible with Campbell as it is with anybody. Um, look at his last season. And so that's an argument against um, either signing Campbell or signing Darcy Kemper, who was the other big name, or trading for, say, John Gibson or even Connor Hellebuck. Um, the next step in that argument, though, is if you can't buy certainty with goalies, why are you buying Matt Murray at $4.7 million? He's been up and down for several years now. You wrote mostly down, which yes, made I mean, me laugh. <laughs> it, it's, I, and I don't mean that to be sound like glib, but it's like, I, I do think there was a lot of hanging on to, okay, he was league average last year in 20 games, right? And that is something, right? I don't want to diminish that. Um, but, you know, he, he, he had two really, really bad years before that. Then another average year then another poor year before that, and then we're back to his strong Pittsburgh days. So it, it's like, it, over the last four years, his upside has been at league average, 
Mm. Right? Now, if he delivers league average to us, that's, that's phenomenal. We'd, we'd be thrilled with that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Right? But it, I don't think we can reasonably expect, oh, he might actually somehow give us, you know, 2017 Matt Murray. Right. Like, if we're gambling like this, if we're saying, look, goalies are crazy, we don't have a lot of cap space, we got to kind of make some imperfect choices and hope for the best, I'm with that argument this far. But then I say, okay, we're dealing with an imperfect market. Goalies are crazy. There aren't that many of them. It's tricky. The best ones are expensive. What other alternatives were there? Okay, well, Ilya Samsonov, the Leafs did sign um, one year at 1.8 million. Eric Comrie signed with the Sabres two years at 1.8 million. Um, If you want to go via trade, Vitek Vanacek, um, he was traded from Washington to Jersey as part of at the draft, and he was valued at about a third round pick there. And then he signed three years at 3.4. Cam Talbot uh, was traded for a goalie prospect from Minnesota to Ottawa. He has a year left at 3.6. Jake Allen is still with Montreal, one year at 2.875. Montreal says they're happy to keep him right now, but he's going to get traded at some point, I reckon. Um, Aiden Hill, currently with San Jose, one year at 2.175. I'd be really surprised if he commanded more than a third in the trade. James Reimer, old friend, 1.225. Still with San Jose as well, same thing. You don't have to love any one of those options particularly, although hopefully you like Ilya Samsonov because we did take that one. But all of them are a million to a million five to two and a half million cheaper than Murray. um, And none of them are commanding a prohibitive price in trade. Right, I mean, the, the, the difference in trade assets really is like a net of like effectively two thirds right because we got a third to take on murray and we'd have to like give up a third to get hill or allen yeah and you know you can say hey look we have a third but for a team in the leafs position cap space is generally more valuable than mid-round picks i'm not saying you don't like mid-round picks they're neat you can trade them for other stuff or pick players who might be good in seven years but you kind of want to prioritize the short term and one to two million dollars ain't nothing, as we're going to end up discussing. It's ex- it's actually highly non-trivial for the yeah. Leafs in their current cap situation. Yeah, and that's if it's an isolated thing. Like if you make two or three mistakes that cost you a combined five or six million, that ends up being real significant real quick. But even this amount is something. So the question is, we preferred Matt Murray apparently at this price of four point seven. We decided we wanted him. Why? I think the same logic that says don't give a big contract to Jack Campbell says don't pay 35% more for Matt Murray over these random other guys. And the argument um, for getting Matt Murray is one, he won two cups with a generational player five years ago. Neat. And two, Kyle Dubas knows and likes him. And... I don't want to overstate this. Dubas has said himself, look, I know him, but that wasn't really what did it. Kyle Dubas has acquired so many former members of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds organization that I'm sorry. It's not really credible to believe that doesn't play a role in his decision making. It just, it does. And in his defense, most of the players he's gotten, who he knows from the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds organization, have been good. Michael Bunting, Jake Muzzin, Rasmus Sandin. Um, and now Matt Murray. Nick Ritchie was a bit of a bust, but whatever, you can't win them all. Um, 
Still, though, I really wonder that Dubas was seeing something here that I can't see. Because that's what we're counting on here, is that he has some reason to believe Murray was the best option here. And, and the connection yeah. with, um, with John Elkin probably plays some role in that, too. I can see a situation where... You know, you have all these goaltending options, and as we discussed, they're all flawed in some way because that's why they're making one to four million and not five to seven million. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all have a great deal of uncertainty. And I can see the familiarity of Dubis and uh, with Murray, both with his time at the Sioux and through Elkin, as in some way sort of like maybe narrowing the error bars or the the perceived error bars around Murray, maybe they feel, okay, I know more about how Murray is going to perform than I do um, Aiden Hill or, or Jake Allen because of this essentially inside knowledge that I have and this, this track record and connection and relationship that I may have established with them. And maybe that makes them more, maybe that leads to them preferring Murray from their from their situation that's just like an outsider's kind of read of the situation but it, it is like i i don't think we should galaxy brain this in the sense of like oh you know Mur- dubis doesn't think murray is good he he's just doing this for some other reason or because you know they wanted the assets or because you know they I can't even really think of what the other reason would be. Like, I, Dubas is betting in a large part the Leafs' season and possibly his career on on Matt Murray. He probably believes that Matt Murray is good, or if not good, at least the option that he feels best in ahead of the other options. And we don't know that those other options were completely on the table. Maybe they didn't want to come to Toronto, which happens. But generally, these types of players will kind of go where the money is. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think that is just something to keep in mind. Like it's the Leafs are betting on Matt Murray. You know, we did sign Ilya Samsonov, mm-hmm. but Murray is getting paid a lot more. He is much more highly regarded. He is older. I would be quite surprised if Murray was not the day one starter, barring an injury. The Leafs are hitching their wagon to Matt Murray, at least to some extent. Yes, and. That brings it back around to the negotiation we talked to, we talked about off the top. There was a point in this negotiation where the Sens said, okay, we'll retain 25%, but that's it. And Dubas had a choice, take this or walk away. And he took it. Um, I don't know if there was a possibility there to route Murray through a third team and pay a little extra for salary retention. I will give Dubas the benefit of the doubt here and say that if he could have done that, he probably would have. So let's assume that it wasn't doable. Um, that brings me back around to this question. Why did he pick Matt Murray over all these cheaper options? And my answer has to be, as you said, he believes in him. He thinks that this guy has the best chance of being the solid starter for the Toronto Maple Leafs next season. And I guess my worries about this move are kind of twofold. One is that I think we might have just thrown away a couple million dollars that we really could have used with consequences we'll talk about later in the episode. And two, I think Dubas might have special belief in Matt Murray, either because of what he did five years ago, which I'm sorry, I don't really care about that much. Mm -hmm. And because he knows him. 
um, from the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And I get, as I've said, this has happened so many times. It's hard for me not to think that familiarity is breeding affection there. And so if Dubas made this deal on a couple of bases that I don't consider that valuable, what sends a shiver down my spine is the thought that the most important position on the team was entrusted on some pretty shaky bases to a guy who played 20 games last year and who played really badly the year before that and who's going to cost 4.7 mil. That's what worries me. It is so, so possible that all of this ends up looking real silly um, very quickly because goalies, right? They're crazy. And even if Murray is just mediocre, the Leafs are probably going to make the playoffs. And then it'll just be a question of how he and or Ilya Samsonov are doing when April rolls around. Yes, that is a very important point to note. One other thing I wanted to mention, um, I guess one marginal advantage of getting Murray and banking the asset, the third and the seventh, is that, as you've mentioned before on the pod a little bit, that is, a third is basically the going rate for any rental goalie. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, that is not like a star. Yeah. So the Leafs also now have some optionality as a result of that extra third. They can basically kind of free roll, in a sense, um, of a, a goaltender upgrade. Someone like Jake Allen could very easily be on the market at the trade deadline. I don't think it would take more than a third to get him. Yeah. Although I will say Montreal thinks they're going to get more. Is the yeah, presu- yeah, yeah, presumably. Um, so, but we'll see. I mean, we have yeah. a seventh, too. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we can package them. Yeah, do, do with thought ahead. Um, and in a sense, you know, the value of that third as opposed to acquiring that goalie now is, well, you know, you lose out on not having that goalie for 50 games or whatever, but you also don't have to pay that goalie for 50 games. You only have to pay them for 30 games, so you get some cap advantage there. Um, now, this it only appears... This would only appear likely if one of Samsonov and Murray are, are hurt, or we like trade one of them because they are like so bad or something. It, it, it's it's a marginal thing. I don't want to overstate the importance of this, but it is something to note. Um, yeah. And then the last thing, which I do want to spend a, just a minute or two on, we haven't really talked about Samsonov at all, but I think we can kind of just sum it up by saying that like he is a highly regarded prospect who has none, who has never really actually had good numbers in the NHL. Yes. Played 44 right. games last year with an 896 save percentage. You can say, hey, that's Ron adjusted save percentage. Yeah, but 896 is bad. And, and um, it doesn't get better if you, if you. Yeah, you know. it's 12 goals below expected, which was near the bottom of the league. Um, scouts have been positive about him. His size, his poise, and his positioning, his rebound control has been questioned. Um, there's a bit of a money ball question of if he's a good goalie, why doesn't he make more saves? Uh, but hey. I'm okay with this as a dice roll. You know, this is a guy who has at least convinced several people that he's a good goalie, and maybe he figures it out. At 1.8 million, I'm okay with that as being one of our two bullets, I guess I would say. Um, I'm still scared, but I'm scared about Murray too, and Murray is two and a half times more expensive. (laughs) Yes, so let's let's finish on a positive note with the goaltending, as I mentioned. What is the bar? for goaltending for the Leafs. It wasn't very high last year, as I've said a couple times. Let me put, I guess, a number behind that. Um, Per Evolving Hockey, the Leafs got the sixth worst goaltending in the league last year. Mm -hmm. That is really bad. The fact that the Leafs were like a top 10 team in the regular season with the sixth worst goaltending is kind of stunning. Um, And it 
does speak to how good a regular season team that the Leafs were, that they are, you know, one of the few teams that is not immediately sewered by really, really bad goaltending. Yes, I was kind of staggered by it. Like, one of the craziest statistics to come out of last season to me is that Peter Morazic had a save percentage of 888, I believe it was, and the Leafs won 60% of his games. That's bananas. Like, that should be very difficult to overcome that caliber of goaltending. Um, so, uh, again, you can say, look, the Leafs have shown that they can survive this bad goaltending. One of these goalies might get it together come playoff time. Uh, you can say, as Arvin noted, you do have a third in the chamber if you want to try and make a rental sometime down the road in some different situation. You can also say, look, I would love to get Andre Vasilevsky, but he wasn't available. Um, there are actually a lot of arguments that add up to don't fuss too much, just get two credible goaltenders and hope for the best. I just have a hard time talking myself into Matt Murray being the best of the available options. That's all. And I think that's sort of reasonable because as much as we've said, okay, the bar is low, the bar is low. It, it is indeed low. Mm-hmm. Um, but if Murray performs like how he performed in either his second most or third most recent season, he is still below that bar. He is below what Jack Campbell did last year. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it's been rough. If he yeah. performs, you know, to some average of, you know, the league average he was last year and what he was in the two years prior, you know, then, then we're kind of in the same range as what Campbell provided last year. Yeah. But, Which you know, is... Murray absolutely can't be as bad as he was in 1920 or 2021 um, because even, even the, a team as good as the Leafs doesn't have much of a hope at that point. You can stomach... You can stomach bad goaltending. You can't stomach some of the worst goaltending in the league. Yes, and that is the... You know, we we were going to try and finish on a positive note, but I'm going to ruin it. Um, The thing about Murray, there's not really a floor. That's the big thing, is a lot of teams get like a veteran backup or something for the idea that at least we'll get someone who's not going to totally embarrass us. That can be hard to come by. Sometimes those guys do end up being really bad just because goaltending is crazy. But Matt Murray has played 88 games over the past three seasons put together. And so his availability and his quality are both kind of wide open. Again, there's an upside case there that is just terrific. Um, Again, yeah, if you want to finish on the optimistic note, it's that Toronto can probably survive all but the worst case scenario here right uh, but to your point goaltending has a really long left tail mm-hmm. uh, and and to point to like the devil's goaltending was the worst in the league last year uh, if you improve the leafs goaltending by like a modest amount right um like you take them up you, you give them the gap that would put them you know 20th in the league in goaltending last year mm-hmm. uh that's one thing if you do that to the devils they're still like 30th Right, like so. If your goaltending is bad, like it, it can really, really go bad in a way that is basically impossible to recover from, where you know, you cannot possibly make it up anywhere else because it's such a long left tail, and that possibility does exist with Matt Murray and with Samsonov, um, and that is absolutely like worrisome. The most likely outcome is is not that I would say. The most likely outcome is probably roughly what we got last year from from Campbell, which again is not good goaltending. 
um, but we could survive that. And then you, you hope that, you know, there, there, there's more, but you know, I, I guess I don't want to like anchor too strongly to like, Oh, that's what I think Murray will do. That's just kind of a back of the envelope. Like, okay, here's my 30 second guess, but it, it's, it, I'd struggle to see a system that predicted Murray would be an, an average goaltender or better next year. Yeah. That's, that's maybe the, the takeaway there. Um, Anyway, I don't want to rag on the guy. Anytime we are critical of anything to do with the Toronto Maple Leafs, someone comes in and says, oh, you're going to write him off before he played even one game? No. I'm just looking at what we have in front of us right now. I am totally open to the possibility that Matt Murray is going to figure it out. I'm hoping that happens. That would be the wonderful. Goddamn team. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the other players that Toronto picked up, because there were several. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas Abe Kubel, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The track record for me pronouncing player names is very bad. I am sorry, but I think that's right. Um, uh, I believe so, yeah. Woo! Good start. Uh, he's a good four-checker. He's coming off a cup win with the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, everyone has nice things to say about his energy, and that's how he managed to get a decent number of NHL games as a 5'11 forward who doesn't score all that much. He had 11 goals, 12 assists, 23 points in 74 games last season, and all four of those numbers were career highs for him. Uh, he's 26 years old. Um, this is the epitome of a bargain bin signing, and, you know, I gave Kyle Dubas a hard time in the previous segment. I've generally been a big fan of how Kyle Dubas has managed the bargain bin. I've been on side with the pro scouting that's happened in his tenure generally. I would agree with that. Um, I expect this to be a good signing, mm-hmm. and I don't expect him to be a leaf for very long because I expect he will play his way into a raise, and then move on next year. Um, as you said, Dubas does well with these. Um, Abe Kubel's profile is good, and it was good in Philly, too. Um, th- where I work, there's a, a big Flyers fan. And he said like he knew Kubel, or Abe Kubel was going to be very good in, in Colorado like, because he, he was good in Philly. Mm-hmm. Right? It just wasn't like, respected enough for it because Philly is a really, really dumb team. Where we'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. God, they're weird and dumb. <laughs> That segment is going to be a doozy, but yes. yeah, we'll get to that. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of like a low-risk signing. I almost, I would be more surprised if he underperformed than if he overperformed, like by, by a considerable yeah. amount. I kind of am perhaps unrealistically baking. It's like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to actually be like an, a very, very good fourth-liner. Yeah, I, I like the bet here. The only thing is, when you're a team in the Leafs position, you need to overperform on a certain number of these deals. You don't need to win on all of them, and you can't. But, like, last year we had Michael Bunting, massive overperformance. Andre Kasha, I would say modest overperformance, depending on how you rate the fact that he was injured for some of it. Nick Ritchie, dud. That's fine. That's kind of how it goes. Um, NAK, I can say I like, um, one, that I can say his name as initials, but two, that I I like the bet on him to do better than a million's worth. Um, I also think fans are going to really like him. His, his his energy and relentlessness is a lot of fun to watch. And and I think, like, people probably underrate how much having a high motor is a skill. Mm-hmm. And they, they attribute it all to effort, and I think Zach Hyman suffered from this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is a skill. And I think, in that sense, Obey Kubel is, is very talented in that respect. Yeah, we, we have a way of saying, you know... With, as nerdy hockey fans, people say, well, look, you don't make the NHL without working hard unless you are a God-given talent beyond words. 
very few exceptions, like Kovalev maybe. But by and large, you have to work hard to make the NHL, and that's true. But at this level, the very highest level, the difference between the guy who's 95% of as hardworking as he can be and the guy who's 99%, that can end up making a difference. And that can be a differentiator um, in the bottom six. Don't want to get carried away. This is a guy, again, whose career high in points was 23. But, yeah, I definitely like it as a bottom six move. Um, Kelly Yarncroke is interesting. I like him as a player, and I'm a little nervous. Right. So, I mean, Yarncroke is, is kind of fascinating because for such a long time, we've been sort of, like, fascinated about him from afar or, like, wanting him from afar. When he signed that, like, six-year, $2 million for your deal, it was sort of unique, and he's kind of done it again. He just really loves his term deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his heyday, he was a really solid defensive, uh, defensively-minded center for the, um, for the Predators while the Predators were kind of at their peak and, you know, making a very deep playoff runs pretty consistently. Yeah, he was like the epitome of the cool third liner, it felt like. You know, like, he would do everything at a pretty competent level. He would kill penalties. He could play some center. He could pop in 10 to 16 goals a year like clockwork, play decent defense. Never produced quite enough that he really made it in the top six for an extended period. Like, he was always in that 30 to 40 point bracket. But, yeah, like, a neato player. And I think Nashville was certainly happy with him for most of his tenure at $2 million a year. Um, that said, they didn't protect him in the expansion draft, but that's how it goes. And then Seattle well, they were, him. Yeah. Were they a four-defense team in the expansion uh, draft? I don't remember. I'd have to be casting my mind back. Nashville feels like they would be. but um, they, they might have been for Vegas, but not, maybe not for Seattle. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, he did. He went to Seattle. He was picked up by the Flames um, as a deadline acquisition. As with so many deadline acquisitions, it did not really work out. He apparently did reasonably well. It's just he went ice cold shooting wise and didn't score. Um, more's the pity. But now he's with us. The thing is, is that this past year between Seattle and Calgary, despite what I said, I was going by the eye test of people who watched him. Statistically... He didn't seem to do quite as well. The isolates are hard on him. They, they are, and he's never really been good on offense as a play driver. He did have, you know, you mentioned his point totals. Those are mostly the result of some perhaps unexpected uh, finishing ability on his end. You know, you don't think of Kyle Yarncroke as a, as a sniper, but his offense was mostly because he, he had a reasonable track record of modestly outshooting his expected goals. But he was never much of a play driver, and that has like continued and probably is not going to get better. Um, the kind of worrisome thing is that what he was always very good at in Nashville was shot suppression and chance suppression. And that sort of eroded through last year. Now, that's the first year where it happened. And there's a couple ways to look at it. You can say, well, he was you know, basically first year on a new team, on two new teams playing on a god-awful Seattle team. Um, And, you know, these things happen. It's one year. He has a long track record of being good defensively. We shouldn't overreact to that, to to, to one poor season, Um, playing in a kind of new environment. Um, I don't know off the top of my head if he was played kind of above where he he should be or in in a position where he was just sort of unsuited to it. But, you know, you can can view that as, as a possibility as well. 
Now, the other way to look at it, and I think is probably the way I lean to more just out of an abundance of caution is, well, he's 30 years old and just had a bad season. What do we think is likely to happen around 30 years old? Mm. Right? It could be the start of just age-related decline. Yes. And And, if that's the case, if he's close to what he is last year, then that's not a great signing for the Leafs because who he was last year was a pretty poor player if you buy the isolates. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we talk about shopping in the bargain bin, and we just talked about NAK and how we're pretty fond of that signing. If NAK forgets how to play hockey and comes in in October and mysteriously is like, hey, what do I do with this wooden thing? Um, The downside risk is still pretty much zero. Nothing bad really happens except that we lose out on what we hoped for. If Yarncroke comes in and says, oh man, I've aged like 20 years in the past two, we're still going to be paying him for four years and it's not a variable amount of salary. So despite we talk about the bargain bin, this is the tier above the bargain bin. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. It just means that it's a little riskier, um, especially with this age. There's also a reason why bottom sixers don't tend to get term because they don't have to fall off that hard for it to start getting painful. In Yarncroke's case, he was a really good bottom sixer and Nashville was paying a term deal that went through his 20s. That's kind of fine. We're paying for his early 30s. I still, in my head, have succeeded in talking myself into this deal because I like who Yarncroke has been. Also worth noting, um, this wasn't like an above market deal in any sense. The evolving hockey contract projection had him at, uh, I think, slightly more than $2.1 million on a four-year deal. Actually, and this is surprising to me, markedly more. It's $4.4 million okay, um, yeah. on a four-year, which is, which is kind of crazy to me, but evolving hockey's model is usually pretty solid. Like, it, it does a pretty good job, and so the times when it's this far off are actually quite rare. So maybe there is some potential for value here. And again, this guy was a good player, and we generally trust the pro scouting to be okay. I guess the Leafs were, were comfortable enough giving four years because they haven't generally given out deals like this. Yeah, and this is, this is an exception to what we mentioned before of you know the Leafs trying very hard to not have any salary or have as little salary as possible um, beyond the current Matthews deal and yes. to, to have as much flexibility as possible for that season and the seasons beyond because we'll, we'll need it at that point. I think this deal is, is justifiable. Um, and just depends quite heavily on how much you think last season is representative of what you can expect from Yarn Crook going forward. Again, I'm not going to front and say I was grinding Seattle crack and tape. Yeah, I right. Most of my <laughs> yeah, m- most of my opinions on Yarn Crook are based on you know seeing him a lot in Nashville because they were a good team. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm probably like higher on him than what stats say. Uh, he was last year. I think it's also worth noting that, like, he was. If we get peak Kadi Arncroke, that is a phenomenal deal. He truly was an excellent uh, defensively oriented uh, depth player uh, who had, like, a, a, enough skill that you don't feel like you're completely, like, giving up the ghost on any potential offense. Um, I think there is an optimistic case for this, which is that, you know, he is closer to what he was in his national peak than what he showed uh, last season. And I think it's not dissimilar to, um, to David Kampf, in a way, mm-hmm. 
in that Kampf had some history of strong defensive results, but his most recent season in Chicago prior to signing with the Leafs was not amazing uh, by defensive stats, by like, you know, Micah McCurdy's uh, isolated threat and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he came to Toronto and was a shot suppressing machine at, at both ends of the ice, but that's kind of what we needed or what we used him for. Uh, and it was, I think, a very successful signing. So I do have, I do give the least pro scouting, again, some benefit of the doubt here. They've shown some ability to be able to assess defensive talent before. Um, and I think this is sort of a reasonable bet to make, although not one without risk. And look, look very, very few signings are without risk and you cannot build an entire team, especially not a team that is paying four people 40 million, or I guess now five people 47 million. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot build a team that is paying that without risk because you are just going to have to pay um, you know, some lower-end players and lower-end players have some risk associated with them. This is a risk I'm generally okay taking even though I, I do understand and respect the chance that it might not work out. Yeah. Um, it, it is probably worth noting just a couple of things. One, you know, the upside case where he gets back his defensive form and has a bit of shooting to that third line is really neat to think about. Um, to that unexpected four years of term, that probably does lower the AAV in the next couple of years. And he also has a modified no trade and some signing bonus protection, which, yeah, yeah. Uh, which can help. The, the, the latter can help in terms of trading him, although he does have the modified no trade. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Dubas kind of gives these out like candy. Uh, mm. I don't know if he had to do it. Maybe other teams were doing it. Your point They're... about f- keeping money free for 2024 it's just kind of funny looking at Toronto's cap sheet now because here's who's signed for 2024 for Toronto. John Tavares, Mitch Marner, Morgan Riley, Kelly Yarncroke. The Fantastic Four. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, anyway, I, like, I get the downside case here, but I'm pretty happy with it. There was one other thing I wanted to mention. Um, Yarncroke is probably the only guy we got who has any credible claim to playing as a top nine center. And even then he's probably not going to do it, but there was a bit of a leaf meme for a little bit that we were going to somehow push John Tavares to the wing. I don't know that that was really going to achieve anything. And I don't know how it was supposed to happen, but like the only way you can really do it is by having him flip with Alexander Kerfoot or William Nylander who play on his line anyway. And I don't know how that benefits you. Especially considering you probably still have Tavares taking left-handed face-offs. Um, anyway, just wanted to point out, that idea looks to be kind of dead to me. I think it was always a bit of a pipe dream, uh, honestly. Yeah, uh, I don't know what that was going to achieve. Anyway, whatever. Moving on to Adam Godet. Um, sorry, be- before yeah. we do that. just yeah. um, So, Jan did play center earlier in his career, he seems to have shifted more to the wing, at least if you mm-hmm. go by his face-off numbers. I, I remember him as a center and as wanting him as a center. Again, haven't watched him that much in recent years, so I don't know what mix of positions he plays. He still does take a fair bit of face-offs, but many, many, many fewer than he did in his peak, which suggests he is being um, at platooned or at the very least rotated on draws. He's not awesome on draws. If he plays the third line anyways, it seems more likely he'll generally play, at least in terms of most of the time he'll play wing, and I know this is like a kind of silly designation at times because teams are more fluid than this in a lot of situations, and I'm sure that in some situations he will be doing, playing the role of a center in like defensive zone breakouts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he does give us, I guess, some options uh, there. Uh, you know, if, if Conf gets injured, I think we could stick him in at 3C in a pinch, and it would not be a disaster. Yeah. Right glass in case of modest inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Gaudet, who is 25, is one year at 750K. I don't know if he's going to be in the starting lineup, so it's possible we're going to waste like five to eight minutes on Adam Godet here, but why not? Uh, he had a dynamite season for Vancouver in 2019-20, put up 12 goals, 21 assists, 33 points, and 59 games played. That, in pure production, would have been a season akin to Callie Yarncroke's best in terms of points per game. Uh, that would have been a 46-point pace. Yarncroke peaked out of 47. Um, the difference is Yarncroke did that or something similar to that for several years in Nashville as kind of a model of metronomic consistency. Godet never touched those heights again or before. Um, he also got 12 power play points that year. And you say, hey, well, neat. Maybe we can use him on the power play. Except he's had some power play time since and he's never done anything with it. it um, it's also like, yeah. you know, we're not going like, oh, let's build our power play around Adam <laughs> Godet. Like maybe he gets some time on the second unit. Yeah. So, but it, like, I, it's hard to imagine he'll be better than, for example, Jason Spezza was on the second unit. No. In fact, I will go out on a limb and say he's going to be a hell of a lot worse if it ever comes to that. I, I think Jason Spezza was genuinely like, could play on a top unit power play somewhere, even last year, probably even this year. Like, because yeah. he is still such a good passer and such a smart player. Yeah, and mobility is less of a premium once he set up, um, which was his weakness as he declined. Anyway... Back to Adam Gaudet, his isolated numbers are bad, and they always have been, because he's a depth player. He's never been that great defensively, and there's no real numeric case to play him above the fourth line. Um, He did experience a chronic stomach issue that apparently made it difficult for him to build muscle. Apparently that was addressed in 2021, so the fact that he's had tough results this past year suggests that unfortunately not everything was fixed in terms of his on-ice play. Let's hope for the best, obviously, for his health and his personal improvement. Um, Toronto would be by far the best NHL team he's ever been on because the previous three were Vancouver, Chicago, and Ottawa. But I don't know that he's going to be on it much. This guy feels like a bit of a press box slash Marley's guy. Um, yeah, I mean, only important thing about this deal is that it's like league men, basically. Yeah. And I get, I, this seems like a reasonable place to say that the Leafs fourth line is in a sort of weird spot. Presumably Abe Kubel is going to be there. Not entirely clear who the the center will be. Uh, maybe Simmons is going to be on on either the left or right wing. Abe Kubel is a right winger, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so Blackwell is gone. Maybe someone like Abersessi or Anderson is on that fourth line, or or possibly Nick Robertson. Um, Alex Steves. Is yeah, the Alex Steves. I mean, yeah. Godet might get that, but just by virtue of being a center, presumably Engvall is going to play on the third line. Yeah, right. Engvall could center the fourth line in a pinch, but I think the third line is going to be Engvall, Kampf, and um, and Yarncroke. So, mm-hmm. it, it's we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, hard, mean, hard to say right now. That's definitely the kind of thing where training camp battles are are open yes, to decide yeah. it. So, yeah, you, you staff up there, you let the best guy win the job. Um, Godet apparently believes in burning sage and the healing power of crystals. Let's hope that they do him great service. Um, <laughs> uh, Jordy Ben. Uh, he's 34. The Leafs gave him a year at 750K. He's big. 
He's a good pro. He won't complain. He can play either side despite being a left shot. He can PK a little bit. He played half a season for Minnesota last year, so he's not totally out of the NHL. But even after the Leafs make what seems like a probable defense trade, he's like a 7-8-9 kind of guy. You know, probably more in the AHL or the press box. But he's there, and people do get injured. Um, Victor Mete might seem a little more interesting at first glance, even though he's in the same price bracket. He's 24. He got one year at 750k as well. He will expire as an RFA with arbitration rights, uh, if that's of any interest. I think, you know, people remember Victor Mete because he looked like he was going to be somebody on the Montreal Canadiens for a minute. I remember him because Evolving Wild said he was better than Morgan Riley. Yes. I actually was chatting with uh, Josh from Evolving Wild about that. And uh, to his credit, he laughed at himself over it. He says, yeah, that was one of the stupidest tweets we've ever made. God, God. We we all have bad takes. <laughs> yeah, like this is to be clear, not a shot at the evolving hockey twins no. who we have cited about thirty five times on this podcast, and yeah. one of the best hockey sites out there. No, not at all. Actually, honestly, they're great about it. They have a sense of humor about it too, which mm. is which is awesome. No, really nice guys. Um, yeah. Anyway, he um, he had a a good year in his D plus one. You know, I don't think that was totally an illusion, even though he was played on the Isle of Third Pair Shelter Defenseman a little bit. He kind of settled in as a small, small, agile defenseman who couldn't seem to get the trust of his coaches, which seems like a familiar tale. He can really skate. I'll say that for him. But he wound up on waivers in April 2021. The Sens claimed him. They signed him for a year at 1.2 million. But they were apparently not satisfied with the results because they didn't qualify him. Again expectations should be real guarded especially once you consider how many people he would have to pass just to become a regular lineup person with the Toronto Maple Leafs um you know never say never but I think again probably he's going to be playing for the Marlies yeah I mean this is interesting because Mete and Ben seem overqualified for the AHL by reputation if not play Mm-hmm. They, neither of them, I believe, has played AHL in quite a bit of time. And as it stands, there are 8th and ninth defensemen. So, given the Leafs' cap crunch, I, can, I think the Leafs can and will want to have 7 defensemen on the roster. I don't think we'll have the room for 8, and I don't think we'll have the roster space for 9. Like that's a, I don't think anyone really carries 9. Um, so, it doesn't, as it stands, it doesn't seem like these guys would be on the roster much if the Leafs were healthy. So this may suggest a trade to either bump the, both of them up a spot, which seems more akin to like what their expectations would be. Um, it could just be that, hey, you haven't played AHL in a while, but turns out you're not as good anymore, so you will have to get, to get used to playing AHL with us if it comes to it. Or it could be that Dubas has said, look, we're signing you to league men. You're going to get a chance to win our seventh defenseman spot in training camp. If you don't get that and we waive you, you're as attractive as you could possibly be on waivers because you're a league men. And... If someone claims you, they have to put you on the NHL roster. Yeah. And, you know, um, these are one-way deals. So they're guaranteed to make $750,000. That's not unappealing. I would expect that if one of these guys becomes the seventh defenseman, it's probably Ben. He's older. Mm -hmm. He's bigger. He's the kind of guy coaches like. Uh, He won't complain if he spends a lot of time in the press box. I think he kind of knows this is it. I'll just do his job. Well, and, and I, I think coaches, 
coach's biggest fear in terms of like what they really want out of replacement defensemen is like that they can PK. Yes. It, 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 it feels <laughs> weird in a way, but it's like the replacement defenseman is always a defensive guy. Yes. You know, it, 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 coaches are risk averse just by, by nature, it seems. And yeah, they're, they're going to, they're going to want the defensive guy or they're, they're given the choice between two roughly equal seventh defensemen. They will want the guy where if they're on a road trip and Jake Muzzin goes out, they don't have to drastically change the PK or something. Yeah. The rule of depth defensemen is the same as the rule for doctors. It's first do no harm. And Jordy Ben seems like the first do no harm candidate. Um, again, we may not be talking extensively about him again. I hope not, frankly, because <laughs> it means something has happened. Um, and then a familiar face, again, one year at 750k, and again, still expiring RFA because he's younger than you might think. Dennis Mulgan, 25 years old and back in town, baby. Uh, he came over uh, in the Mason Marchment trade that we were like, yeah, this is almost no risk. And it turned out to be, like, the worst trade of Dumas' career. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about evolving hockey's, like, bad take. And, like, oh, man. I, I remember, because I wrote the, art, the, the PPP article for this deal. And it's not like I was like, oh, Marchman's a bum or anything. I was just like, okay, yeah. it seems like we traded a probably not going to be NHL player for a, is a tweener NHL player. So we maybe got the slightly better end of it. And then Mason Marchman took that personally. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to shut up this idiot. <laughs> and then has done that. You know... I'm so cautious and so prone to hedging my every single statement. Mulligan for Marchment was one of the few times I didn't do that, and I got rocked by it. Like, I was like, look, this is not going to be a problem. Uh, anyway, that's kind of how it went down. That's I guess the, the other time that I can remember that really backfired was like that five-for-one deal for Grabner, where I was like, these prospects are don't seem to be that big a deal. None of them are really progressing. And for, like for Hagee was the most promising. I'm just like, okay, he, he's... Killing it in the OHL and it's like draft plus two, but a lot of people do that, not yeah. too fussed. And then he, he also becomes excellent in Florida. Actually, he was I, very good in Tampa before that, too. Yeah, he was good in the depth role, and I kind of was surprised they didn't hang on to him, but I maybe got a modest raise. I actually remember I found my comment on mm -hmm. the five for one trade at some later date, and I actually said, you know, I'm a little worried about giving up for Hagee, but it's probably fine. Mm -hmm. I doubt we're even going to hear about him again. Uh, anyway, but Malgan <laughs> is back. <laughs> is what I was trying to say before I started lamenting my failures. Um, let me see. The autocorrect on Google Docs still wants to call him malign, which I hope is not an omen. Uh, this is probably Mulgan's last shot at an NHL job. He was in Europe last year. Um, if this doesn't work out, I don't think he's coming back over the Atlantic again. Um, he's small. He's skilled. He put up 11 goals, 11 assists, and 22 points in 51 games for Florida. I swear everyone we talked about in this episode has put up approximately 22 points in a season at some point. That was in 2017-18, so in the vein of, like, yeah. how much should we care about these things that happened four years ago? The, the difference is that Morgan is young, as you said, and yeah. has not had any major injuries that we know of. Yeah, he's... He does feel a bit like the top six or bust type of player. And he's unfortunately not really good enough to command a job in the top six. Like, his hands are probably as good or better than anyone else in the bottom six. But they're his calling card, whereas the other players in the bottom six have more things to offer. Morgan needs to be producing to really earn his keep. 
he doesn't produce quite enough, I don't think. I won't say it's impossible that he latches on and gets a little hot at the right time and earns a spot, but I think everyone's going to have real modest expectations after previous experiences on this one. So, Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there is a sort of open spot on second line left wing, possibly. Uh-huh. You never know. But probably not. <laughs> I hope. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like, it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world, I guess, especially if they do trade Kerfoot. So we'll see. Um, the Leafs extended Pierre Engvall, old friend, 26, one year at 2.25 million. You know Engvall, big, fast giraffe. He added just enough finishing last year to make him productive. So 15 goals, 20 assists. And um, none of Yarncroak, Abe Kubel, Godet, or Malgan have produced more than 35 points in a season, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Yarncroak has tied that amount, but Engvall has done well. He's a useful all-around player. I like him a lot, actually. I like Pierre Engvall. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, Engvall is clearly a, a good player. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, no one's going to mistake him for an elite offensive contributor. I already saw. He says he wants to score. Um, he wants to score how many goals? 20 goals this year, which is a noble goal that I do not want to bet on him making. <laughs> you never know. I mean. No, I, I think but, if everything yeah, breaks right, I mean, he could have it. If everything breaks right, he could definitely have a year where, where that happens. I just don't think it is likely to. Right? Yeah. Um, 2.5 is like a little too much. 2.25. Like, Sorry, two point two five rather. Yeah. Still slightly too much more than I would have liked, but like fine. You know, he's he's a confident third liner and, and his ability to like play center in a pinch is genuinely pretty helpful as well. Yeah. He's like he's useful at, at almost everything. And you know, he's big, he can skate, he can score a little. Yeah. If he it, has it is, another yeah. No, it it is nice that we that he has some speed. Right. Yeah. I I like him a lot. If he puts together another season like last year, this year, he will get a somewhat surprising contract the year after that, probably from someone else. So, yeah. Anyway, we've got him for one more season. Great. Um, all of this leads to a question, though. When's the trade? Right. Because this team doesn't really work, as currently constituted. Um, and by doesn't really work, I mean it's over the salary cap. Um, now, the Leafs can run a short lot roster to get this group of players under the salary cap. But they haven't signed Rasmus Sandin yet. And it's starting to become a question what the plan is there. Because Rasmus Sandin was considered, not long ago, the best prospect or prospectish player in the Leafs organization. I think he's shown well in the NHL too. He lost his job last year for the playoffs due to injury. And the word is he hasn't been super happy about his lack of opportunity. Um, well, guess what? The Leafs have six players ahead of him. They, we didn't talk about the Mark Giordano extension because it happened before the offseason proper. But the Leafs signed Giordano for two years at 800000 which for how good he's been is terrific. Yes. But it puts an obstacle in the way of sending playing. And so now there's an RFA negotiation pending, and it seems almost guaranteed that they have to trade somebody. And we've kind of boiled it down to four options for this 
this segment of like what they might do in terms of a trade. But I expect they'll do at least one of these four. First one is trade Jake Muzzin. Muzzin has a full no move at the moment. He would have to waive. The Leafs are rumored to have no interest in even asking him, so you can probably cross that one off. Trade Alexander Kerfoot. That frees up $3.5 million, and that also gives uh, Dennis Malgan the opportunity that we all so richly want him to earn. <laughs> um, but it costs Toronto a complimentary winger who can fill in at 3C in a pinch, and he's more productive than anyone we would be replacing him with, unless you trade him for a better version of himself, which is a tough trick. Yes. Um, Kerfoot's last season, most recent season, I, I think he ended up with, what, 51 points or something like that? Yeah. Uh, and I... Look, he got pretty lucky to get 51 points, but mm -hmm. there's a baseline level of skill and opportunity you need to get 51 points in the NHL, with regardless of any amount of luck. Mm -hmm. And he got it, and I'm not sure the other players we have on the roster could, even in that same situation. Mm-hmm. The thing about trading Kerfoot is you have five players who are clearly ahead of him in the pecking order, and they're Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Bunting. Then you have Kerfoot, and then you have a long list of guys who have never hit 40 points, except for Wayne Simmons, but that's long in the rearview mirror now. Um, even if you say, hey, he got to 51 points through smoke and mirrors and shooting percentage, that's still not something that any of them have done. So, yeah, I, like, I don't think trading him is painless. Um, and if you trade him, you probably end up looking for his replacement. Um, putting that aside for the moment, the, the third option is to trade Justin Hall. Um, that's not as great as it might sound to some people. No, uh, it's... It, yeah. it, it, well, I mean, for one, it just doesn't clear that much room. Mm -hmm. He makes only $2 million, and when you factor in the minimum salary that you have to replace him with, he clears $1.25 million. I yes. forget the exact number on this right now. I can look this up on Cap Friendly if we, if we want to, but I think the yeah. Leafs are currently like $1.5 million above the cap. Yeah, uh, thereabouts. Um, I did the math on this. If they trade Hall, they can give Sandine... Uh, 1.2 million or so with a 21 man roster, correct? With a 21 man roster, so one, one, one of, yeah. One other thing I want to I want to yeah. note on that is like fans love the idea of like oh just run 20 men, and it's like coaches hate that, <laughs> and it's like actually yeah. not really feasible. I don't know of clubs that have managed to do that for an extended period of time where it's not just like oh we are dealing with like a severe injury crisis. Yeah, it's a discomforting thing to have to confront, and it runs the risk that at some point things go really wrong on a road trip. And then you're running a short roster. And there are teams that have had to do that um, in recent years. Um, that said, um, the option is there. If you do that, you're signing Sandine to a one-year, basically. Like, I don't even think you can give him what you gave Timothy Lilligren, which was two years at $1.4 per, because you're that tight. Um, and again, that's not a super great thing to have to do with Rasmus Sandine if you really like him. Um, but like, it may be what the Leafs are forced to, um, just given how they've kind of cornered themselves on this one. If you give Sandine like 1.2 million next year, he gets Arbrights. 
he's probably not super happy with you. That might set up an acrimonious negotiation. And this is mm -hmm. putting aside the fact that Sandine is a really obvious candidate for an offer sheet. He is, and it's, I guess, at least somewhat weird that he hasn't been offer sheeted, or that, I mean, maybe someone has presented an offer sheet, we don't know. Um, but yeah, this is like among the most obvious ones that we've seen. Yeah, and again, nobody sends mid-level offer sheets, to my knowledge. Like, the, the offer sheets that have happened in recent years were Sebastian Ajo, um, Montreal to Carolina, matched, and then Jasperi Kotkaniemi, which was Carolina retaliating for what Montreal did. Montreal said, okay, see you later. Um, so and there is a side note. Yeah. Um, that doesn't look, that, that, that was like a fun thing to do, but <laughs> that looks kind of dumb now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, a good joke and everything, but now they have him at a contract that they might kind of regret. You know, we talked about it last summer and we were basically like, this is kind of dicey, but you know, Carolina's a smart team. So we'll see what happens. And now we're like, wow. Okay. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, the point is, is that sending would make an enormous amount of sense for someone to send an offer sheet for like two and a half or three million. And that puts the Leafs in a really tough position to match. And the draft compensation is not exorbitant. They could even give him 4.1 mm -hmm. if, if they really believe in him. And the compensation is still a second round pick. Um. Again, since that doesn't really seem to happen, maybe it's not a huge concern. And Kyle Dubas basically said, yeah, bring it on, I don't care. Which might have been bravado, or might have been his actual opinion. I am surprised at how this negotiation has gone down. I, like, for a guy in Kyle Dubas, who, whose greatest weakness is probably that he doesn't negotiate that hard in a lot of cases, or doesn't seem to, um, he seems to have gotten into really kind of grinding on Sandine, who is an RFA without Arbrights, so mm -hmm. you can probably get away with it in the short term. But I'm a little surprised, considering Sandine was, con was you know, very well thought of. He was Sandine's, uh, sorry, Sandine was Dubas's first pick as the general manager, and he has a lot of talent. He's 22, he's a very smart player. Um, right. Maybe it, this is fine, but it's a weird situation. It is, and... Again, a trade has to be coming. If I was a betting person, I would say, I would say that Kerfoot is the most likely to go, but it's like really close with him and Hall. It has to be basically one of the two, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, sorry, just to head this off here, no, we are not acquiring Matthew Kachuk. Um, I don't even think we need to really explain it, but like we are just not acquiring him. He pretty clearly doesn't want to stay in Canada long term. So yeah. like all, all the all of the teams he wants to go to are in the U.S. I, I think that's probably a large part of why he wants to get out of Calgary, which is his prerogative, and, and yeah, that's absolutely fine. But we're not going to acquire him. Yeah. So, like, no Nylander for Kachuk weird scenarios or anything like that. Um, or if you're really insane, like, Marner for Kachuk scenarios. Anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, so I guess either Kerfoot or Hall is going to get traded. I think, you know, there's nothing new there. I think that kind of everyone seems to agree that it's one of those two and the trade-off is really, like, where do you want to be weakened more? And I, I think I would prefer trading Hall a little bit. It's imperfect because then we have this left-right imbalance, and it's, like, not obvious who plays second-pair right side. Like, do you just promote Lilligren there and then have either, you know, Giordano or Sandine 
or Muzzin on their offside, and that seems unlikely. But for, for Muzzin, because you know we've been talking about that for years and years and years, and it doesn't happen. It seems like he's just not comfortable there, which is fine. Um, can have Sandine there, but then he's kind of on the third pair again on his offside. That seems sort of unideal from his perspective. So, so yeah, I don't think there's a ton of like options that make everyone happy. And one option is we just trade Sandine, which I wouldn't love. I, I think Sandine represents one of the few chances the Leafs have at real upside in outperforming a contract over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I would, that I think for a team in the Leafs situation is pretty useful to be able to have because it's not, you're not always going to be able to find Michael Bunting on the free agent market. Yeah. Like we talk about where do you really find value from players? Like the best value you get is cost controlled young players. Sandin represents that. And I get the decision to sign Mark Giordano because he wanted to be here. He's still good at the value he was at. It was almost like you almost couldn't say no. Seriously. Like speaking of uh, evolving hockey's contract predictions, he was by far um, the lowest contract below value. Like in terms of what he's expected to bring and what he actually cost. It was a huge discount. You basically have to do that if you're a contending team. But it now leads to these tough decisions where it's not clear what the Leafs are going to do. I think if you add all this together, you probably say the Leafs are maybe slightly worse on net pending the outcomes of some of these bargain bin maneuvers. Like what I'm basically expecting is, okay, say the goaltending is about a wash. Um, John Tavares got a little bit older um, in, in the decline phase of his career, probably. And then Mikhaev and Kasha uh, cost you a few goals on the offensive end that you probably don't get back from NAK and Kelly Yarncroke, I'm guessing. Um, that's not the end of the world by any means. And it's probably not as steep a drop as Florida is confronting, for example. You know, they lost Mason Marchment. They have some injuries. Um, Tampa Bay had to trade Ryan McDonough and lost Andre Palat. Um, Boston, I don't even know what they're doing. But, yeah, like I, I think the Leafs may have suffered a little bit, even though the rest of the Atlantic did too, so it may not hurt them that much. I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other thoughts on the Leafs? Not really. I mean, I think this is a reasonable offseason. I think there's a little bit lower upside to this offseason than last year. Or in some way, there's a lower upside to the skaters. Because even last year we were saying, hey, Michael Bunting has looked really good in his short time. And if he is like a decent NHL, there's like possibly some, some pretty good upside there. Yeah. Um, Bunting hit his best case scenario. Yes. Like we were like, okay, in the 90th percentile projection, he does this. But probably less. And nobody hit it out of the park. Good for him. But I don't think anyone who the Leafs signed has a 90th percentile projection that is like as high as what Mikheyev gave us last year or anything like that. Now, I think actually the least best avenue for improvement is that between Samsonov and Murray, they get league average goaltending, and that would actually be significantly, uh, mm-hmm. a very, very significant improvement that would be like more impactful than, than any reasonable skater loss. Because I think you know the median outcome for the skaters is that maybe they're slightly worse than the players we lost. Like, you know, slightly worse than Blackwell, than the combination of like Blackwell and Mikheyev and things like that. 
Yeah, uh, you know, it's worth, we were a little skeptical on the Matt Murray trade. I think that's rightly. And I would also say this if they had just kept Campbell and, and Morazic. But also, like, goaltending being what it is, there's a lot of room to improve upwards after a bad season, and maybe it happens, and suddenly you're golden. All sorts of crazy shit can go down. So, I'm definitely not pessimistic on the Leafs as a whole. No, I mean, I think the Leafs are still you know. a pretty clear top team in the NHL. Yeah. Like, the best uh, team I, in the NHL is still, I think, the Colorado Yeah, Avalanche, Yes, yeah. But, to be clear, when I say that, I don't mean the best yeah. team in the NHL, but, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. a contending team, or a team that, at least, like, should be pretty fearsome in the regular season. Yeah. And then, who knows what happens. And then, who knows. That. Yeah. But, yeah, so, we'll see. Obviously, there's another move coming. Um, at least one. And there are still a lot of shoes to drop around the NHL, which we will hope happens in time for us to do the league survey pod in a couple weeks, or the first of them, where we find out what everyone else in the league is doing. So stay tuned for that. Yes. So we'll be in our, um, our, our kind of every two weeks off-season schedule, and then we'll reevaluate as, as the season uh, progresses and our availability um, you know, changes and whatnot. But yeah, thank you all for, for listening to this. And more generally, thank you all for supporting us for the, over the last like four and heading into our fifth year. It, it's really cool. Um, you know, the podcast can go to kindergarten now. <laughs> you know, have fun with all the other podcasts. Tries not to get bullied, tries not to bite anyone or lick anyone or anything like that. <laughs> oh no, but it, it, it is really cool. I, I think, yeah. you know, I didn't expect to be still doing this five years later, but it's been a lot of fun. And I think we, we have like a pretty awesome and, and unique little community of people who seem to really enjoy the pod and enjoy interacting with us. And that is super, super cool. And I definitely don't take that for granted. And I know you don't either. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thanks. And we, I got so many people who are like, when's the pod coming back? I'm like, you guys care this much about us in June and July? That's fucking awesome. So it thank really you, is. seriously. And the answer is now. <laughs> you, so you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.